Please open your Bibles now to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. Today we will be looking at the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 5 as we continue our journey through this glorious book. And basically Hebrews chapter 5 is making an assertion very emphatically. And the assertion that Hebrews chapter 5, 1 through 10 is making is that Jesus is the Savior and great high priest we all need. So hear now the word of the Lord as we read it from chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Let us pray. Lord, this is your word. And the thing that blinds us most from understanding it is the pursuit of our own agendas and hardness of heart and our sin. So we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. That we might see our sin and we might see how our Savior answers that sin and responds and supplies all of our needs. Lord, we would see Jesus today and we pray in his name. Amen. Now in this passage, the author of Hebrews is explaining to us how Jesus, the one who was resurrected, ascended to the right hand, entered into the presence of God, and now is our faithful high priest at the right hand of God, is the Savior and priest every one of us needs. And he shows us that in three particular ways. First, as you look at verses 1 through 6, especially zero in on verse 2. And let me read verse 2 again uh, from chapter 5. He can deal gently with ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. We're going to zero in on that particular verse this morning. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now you may say to yourself, how can Jesus, who has to offer up sins, offer up sacrifice uh, for his own sins as well as for our sins, uh, how can a high priest, excuse me, let me repeat that statement because that was just about heretical. Let me, let me straighten that one out. Jesus is not like the human high priest who were beset with weakness and who had to offer up for their sins, offer up a sacrifice for his own sins as well as for our sins. How can this Jesus we know who is without sin relate to us who are full of sin? How can he relate to us? Well, he's already said, if you look back at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, he's already said, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. By repeating these words in verses 2 and 3, especially in that section from verses 1 to 6, as he speaks about a human high priest, the author is emphasizing we have a compassionate Savior. We have a Savior who is able to sympathize with our struggle with sin. Now that's good to know. Because we all struggle with sin. And sometimes when we struggle with sin, the last place we want to go and the last person we want to face is the one who was hung, suspended between heaven and earth, paying for our sins. And yet what the writer of Hebrews wants us to know is that as we live our life in this world and we struggle and battle with sin. And if you don't believe that, look at Romans 7, 14 to 25 in the Apostle Paul who says, there are things I want to do that I know are right and I don't. And there are things that I hate that I don't want to do and I find myself doing them. We're all there. But we have a Savior who has compassion for people who struggle with their sins. Therefore, we don't run from Him when we're struggling. We run to Him when we're struggling. Now, you're going to ask yourself and ask me, how can he be compassionate for us since he didn't sin? And the answer is this. Jesus' perfection did not limit his experience in temptation. It enhanced it. Jesus' perfection did not limit the intensity of his experience in, in temptation. It enhanced it. And therefore, Jesus' perfection did not limit his ability to sympathize with you in your struggle with sin, but rather, it enhanced it. Listen to uh, Raymond Brown, who is one who has written on the book of Hebrews. Jesus' whole life, he says, was one of temptation. Just take that in. Jesus' whole life was one of temptation. And the very fact that he has powers and abilities which we do not possess only added to the stress of it. He was the fullest and most vivid personality that the world has ever known. And the very richness of his human nature exposed him all the more fully to the assaults of temptation. No one, earth, no one on earth before or since has ever been through such spiritual desolation and human anguish. For this reason, he can help us in our moments of temptation and struggle 
For that reason, he can do so. He is aware of our needs because he has experienced to the full pressures and testing in, in a life in a godless world. And I would assume the purer and more holy he was, the more powerful the temptations were to him. And we see that as he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And we see that as he's tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane. And on his way to the Garden, he's tempted again. But his life was one of constant temptation. I remember I went to a church in Dallas, Texas. And uh, it, was a, it was a Bible church, and it was a good church, and those people loved us. And I really liked the pastor. He was a wonderful teacher, and uh, he, he really had a heart for Jesus. And I think he was a good man, but I could not relate to him. Let me tell you why I could not relate to him. He told in a sermon one Sunday that the worst thing he had ever done in his life was when he was 16 years old as a teenager. So I'm leaning up in my seat. I'm looking at this guy. I can't see a flaw in him. And I'm thinking, surely he's human. Surely he has struggled. He said, the worst thing I ever did was my parents forbade me to go to a party. It was a teeny teen party, and there was dancing and music. No liquor or anything like that, just dancing and music. And he was a very conservative person, extremely conservative. And his parents forbade him to go. And he said, I was tempted, and I went to the front door of the party. I knocked on the door. They opened the door to let me in, and the Holy Spirit convicted me with great power at that moment. And I turned, and I walked away, and I went back home. And I'm sitting in my seat going, I could never talk to that guy <laughs> about the wretched stuff that's in my heart and in my past because I can't relate to him. And Pam would say, well, why don't you go to talk to Pastor John about this thing you're, you're struggling with or this question you have or wondering about whether you're going to go to seminary. You're going to go get some counsel for him. Go see him. And I'd always just say, the dots don't connect between us. He doesn't get me and I don't get him. But Jesus gets us all. He knows us. He knows us through and through, and he knows the depth of the struggle. And he knows the power of the temptation far more than you do. Why? Because he exhausted it in resisting it. He has tasted the full measure. We give in to temptation. He never gave in. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us here, especially in verses 2 and 3, Following on what he's just said in Hebrews 14 and 15, he is saying this to you. Jesus can relate and connect to you in your situation right now. He knows all about it. Jesus can connect with us. He knows how to sympathize with us in our struggles with sin. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And I want you to take that in for just a moment. You remember the scene when Jesus has just explained to his disciples that he must go to Calvary and die for us. And Peter's response is what? Never, never, I'll defend you to the end. I'll take them out with my sword. Everybody else, Lord, may abandon you. But, uh, but, but, um, I won't. That's what Peter said. I won't. I won't do it. And you remember Jesus' response. It sounds harsh to the ears. He looks at Peter and he says, Get thee behind me, Satan. There are people I want to say that to every day. Get thee behind me, Satan. Now what's that about? 
My friends, that is about a response to temptation that you and I cannot possibly comprehend or understand. The strong response of our Savior to his loyal but erring disciple is an indication of the depth of the temptation that was assaulting his soul at that very moment. The evil one was saying constantly, abandon the plan, abandon the plan. You see, even your disciples will defend you. They'll keep you from going to that tree. You don't have to go there. Jesus' response when those words come from the mouth of his faithful disciple is, get thee behind me, Satan. It's just another indication of the fact that it's not Jesus who can't relate to our temptations. It is we who cannot relate to his. None of us, none of us have ever gone through a nanosecond of what Jesus went through. And that is why he came to say to you, I know what it's like to be you. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be tempted. I can sympathize with you and come near to you in your struggle with sin. Because, child, I've experienced things, thank God, that you will never experience. And I know some things about how to fight sin. I've conquered sin for you. You have a sympathetic Savior. And the author of Hebrews is saying you have a compassionate Savior. You've got a Savior who can relate to you. He understands what it is to be, uh, what it's like to be in your skin. Who knows what it's like to fight against your temptation. He understands. He knows. He's compassionate. He's sympathetic. And that's what he's telling us. We have a Savior we need in Jesus because he's a great high priest who is sympathetic with our sin. When you read back, uh, let me refer back again to verse 2 where he says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now Christ is not beset with weakness. But he can still deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. That's an amazing thing. I can remember uh, one of the greatest struggles I have as a pastor is dealing with people who are wayward or dealing with people who are ignorant. Sometimes the limits of your patience are tested. Sometimes you get harsh with them. I remember when I was a young preacher, my wife reminded me of this Friday night for some reason. She said that somebody in the church had really disappointed me. This was in, in my, one of my first churches. Uh, I think I had asked for a raise and, uh, because, you know, I had a growing family and we were struggling financially and uh, we were having a hard time. So I met with the people and pled for a raise. And, and they gave me a paltry sum. I mean, it was ridiculous from where I was standing. And uh, I remember getting mad about that getting really upset about that how dare them do that and just just thinking you know it's obvious look at this I have three children I, I'm going to seminary I'm pastoring this church and and I remember being so angry about it and Pam said the anger came out in the next message why because I'm a human beset with weakness and that was the first and last time I ever did that and my wife reminded me of it the other day she said you beat the sheep that day you didn't lead the sheep. You didn't feed the sheep. You beat the sheep that day because you were preaching out of anger. I don't want to hear that. 
Because as a human being, I am beset with weakness. I am weak morally. I am weak spiritually. I am weak physically. I am weak emotionally. But Jesus is not. And he's humble enough to deal with us. He condescends. He humbles himself to come to us when we, like sheep, are going astray. You read all those parables in Luke about the shepherd going and finding the sheep. The father running to the prodigal son. The elder brother should have gone after him. And, and finding the coin. There's always the search. Jesus is the one coming to the wayward. Why? Because he can sympathize with your struggle. And as we grow in Christ, we are enabled more and more to go to the wayward. Why? Because we know we got a wayward heart. And we don't forget that. And we have patience with the ignorant. Why? Because we know we were once ignorant. I doubt seriously if there's anybody in this room who was born truly reformed. Matter of fact, I know there's no one in this room. And for us to be snobs about that, for us to be reformed chauvinist, is ridiculous. It's silly. It's stupid. If you know the beauty of Reformed theology, which no one loves more than I do, why do you know it? Who gave it to you? Who is able to reveal that to you and enable you to believe that? God did that. And so there's a willingness to approach people who may not cross their T's and dot their I's just like we do. But we're able to have compassion. And we're able to have compassion as we're more and more molded into the image of our Savior. The second thing that this passage tells me that I think is very important is that Jesus understands what it means to submit to the will of God. Look at verse 7 in the text. Look at it again. Chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. We could meditate on Hebrews 5, 7 for the rest of our lives and never get to the bottom of it. It is that glorious. But for just a few seconds, look at it. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now, you know, just that phrase, he was heard because of his reverence, he was heard because of his fear of God, he was heard because of his godliness, you could meditate on that for the rest of your life. And never exhaust it. But in the phrase right before that, I want you to think about that a second, because you know what the author of Hebrews is saying here. He's saying you have a Savior who understands what it means to submit to the will of God. You know, one of the hardest things to do in our lives as Christians is to trust God and submit ourselves to His will when we do not understand what He's doing in our lives. And when His answers to our prayers are not the answers we plan for, as his answers to our prayers. And Hebrews 5, 7 is saying you have a Savior who understands. I want to repeat that again in case you didn't get it. You have a Savior who understands what it means to submit to the will of God. 
And you know that one of the hardest things we ever have to do as Christians is to trust God and submit ourselves to His will when we do not understand what He is doing in our lives. And when His answers to our prayers are not the answers that we have planned out for His answers to our prayers. And Hebrews 5, 7 is saying to us, you have a Savior who gets that, who understands that. Did you miss it? Do you hear what it's saying? Jesus, in his flesh, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To whom? To him who was able to save him from death. Let me ask you a question. Did he do that? He did not. No. He did not save Jesus from death. He did not. He was able to save him from death, and him who was able to save him from death did not save him from death. Jesus, or Hebrews 5-7, clearly is reflecting on the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know about the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays to his Father three times in Matthew's Gospel. It's in all four Gospels, where Jesus... It's the night before the crucifixion. He knows that Judas is betraying him. He knows he's about to be handed over to the Roman guard. He knows what's coming. He knows he's heading for the cross. And he's in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the disciples are there with him. And he goes about a stone's throw away to pray. And he goes and he gets on his knees before the Father and he says, Father, if it's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. What's he asking for? What's the cup? The cup is the cup of judgment. It's the dregs of God's wrath. It is that which God poured and emptied upon his son upon the cross. And in his humanity, in his flesh as a human being, he is shrinking back from the thought of having the Father upon whom he has beheld glory and enjoyed communion and fellowship forever turn his face away and abandon him upon the cross and he's saying father if there's any other way if it's if it's possible if there's any other way it can happen please he's pleading luke tells us he's a physician you know that it was as if drops of blood and sweat were falling from his brow as he prayed that prayer and he'd go back and he'd find the disciples and he said, watch and pray. And they were sleeping. And he was alone and isolated right before the cross. And he prays it three times, Matthew's gospel tells us, the third time. And finally he says, get up, let's go. But he said what? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The Father's answer to Jesus was no. But that wasn't the final answer, which you'll see in a moment. Have you ever cried out to God with loud tears? God, heal my body. Someone called me Friday night who's been attending this church. They're not members, but their daughter just found out she had stage 4 cancer of the colon. Four children, no husband. And he wanted me to pray, and I did pray, and I did call out to the Lord for healing. You ever done that? Or 
you cried out to the Lord with, with cries and loud tears. Father, bring my child back to the faith. Please intervene and save my child. Or, oh God, please fix my marriage. We're miserable. We're living in constant conflict. It's destroying both of us. I don't want to settle for detente. I want a living, vital, glorious. God, please fix my marriage. Or God, please give me a job. I need a job. And the answer you got was no. The author of Hebrews is saying Jesus understood that. He knew what it was to submit to the will of God. Do you remember the rest of his prayer? If it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. To that part of the prayer, the answer was yes. But to let this cup pass from me, the answer was no. You have a Savior who knows what it is to live right there. Right there. And isn't that one of the great challenges of the Christian life? To keep believing, to keep trusting, to submit yourself to the will of God when you don't like what's happening to you, when you don't understand what's happening to you, and when you're not getting answers to the prayer that you want. It's mind-boggling, my friends. The author of Hebrews is saying that the second person of the Trinity can relate to you there. He knows what it's like to get a no and submit himself to that. He's the Savior you need, and that's where we live. That's why he's such a, a great high priest for us. He knows what it's like to hear no, because he heard it. And the consequences he suffered far outpace anything you and I could ever imagine. The depths of that no were far more powerful than anything we'll ever go through. What I'm trying to get you to see, and the author of Hebrews is trying to get you to see, is you have a perfect Savior. You have a great high priest who's able to sympathize with you in your struggle with sin and to help you and to come near to you and to aid you and provide help. You have a Savior who knows what it's like to submit to the will of God and get a no. <laughs> now, that ought to challenge some of the theology of your prayers. If the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfect in every way, who was heard because of his fear of the Lord, got a no to one of his prayers, don't you think you will sometimes too? Don't you think God will sometimes say no? Not because he wants to destroy you, not because he wants to harm you, but he knows the end from the beginning. He knows exactly what would happen if he said yes to that prayer. And he has a better plan in view. He has a love for you that transcends your ability to grasp it. And so that is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. This is down to the earth gut level stuff. That's where we live in some of the hardest and most important places in our life. This is our home address. And if we didn't have a Savior who knew what it was like to live right there, we wouldn't have a Savior we need, but we do have the Savior that we need. And that is what the author of Hebrews is telling us here. Hard place. Hard place. Sometimes it's hard to submit. And it's hard, for, it's hard to hear no. Finally, and the third thing this passage wants us to understand is that Jesus understands suffering because he fulfilled it perfectly and in totality. 
Look at the very next verse. It's not only that we have a compassionate Savior who's able to sympathize with us in our struggle with sin. It's not only that we have a Savior who understands what it means to submit to the will of God. But we have a Savior who understands our suffering. Look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now again, it's one of those sentences you could spend the rest of your life meditating upon and never see the bottom of it. It's not that uh, Jesus wasn't obedient and then suffered and became obedient. It's not that Jesus was sort of obedient and perfected his obedience after his suffering. It is that the totality of his obedience, what God called him to do, what the eternal redemption pact, the covenant of redemption was all about, the totality of his obedience was not perfected or finished until he had undergone all the experiences of suffering up to and including the humiliation that he endured on the cross. That's the perfection he's talking about in verse 8. And it's referenced again in the first few words of verse 9. In other words, Jesus learned obedience as he walked the path of suffering the whole of his life, culminating in his humiliation on the cross. And at every point on the way, he was equal to the demands of that suffering and fulfilled it perfectly until the totality of his suffering was complete upon the cross. And in this he learned obedience. Most of us know that there were seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And one of them was, he lifted his head and said, Tetelestai! And, uh, you know, people that didn't know what he was saying didn't know what he was saying. But Tetelestai in Greek means, it is finished. It's finished. The whole of his life from birth to the cross to the tomb was suffering suffering and he finished the work God had given him to do and the work he had finished was to suffer in our place for our sins and he completed it he learned obedience this should remind us that obedience is never an easy thing obedience isn't a one-time thing the Savior walked the path of suffering and he understood its fruitfulness its fruitfulness in his life. And my friends, that's important. Why? Because there are people sitting right there, right out in front of me, who know suffering. It comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes in your life. And the question is, is there any fruitfulness in that suffering? And here's a Savior who knows suffering. His whole life is a life of suffering and temptation and he was fruitful in that suffering and that suffering bore the fruit of a perfect obediency that is active and passive obedience that's what he's talking about the penal and the perceptive obedience of christ is in view in this verse that is in the totality of his life he obeyed god's word in his suffering culminating on the cross he bore in his body the penalty for breaking that word and thus he fulfilled in both ways the law of God. He kept it himself. He bore our penalty for not keeping it. And so his suffering was exceedingly fruitful. It bore fruit in an obedience that saved you and me. You know that salvation is by obedience. 
Not your obedience, not my obedience, but Jesus' obedience. This is a very fruitful obedience, and it was learned and earned in suffering. Are you suffering? Jesus gets it. He understands that, and he understands fruitfulness in suffering. Now, the author of Hebrews is showing us these three things. He's a compassionate, sympathetic Savior. He's a Savior who understands submission to God's will. He's a Savior that understands the fruitfulness of suffering and bore the fruit of obedience in his life that has blessed the world. And it is that Savior who's announced in his ascension and resurrection as the great high priest that you and I need. Look at verses 9 and 10. You have a Savior that God has designated as the last and best and only priest for humanity. He has designated him such by the resurrection of the dead. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now don't be bothered by that word obey. Obey simply means to hear the gospel, to repent, and to believe. Neither of which you have the power in yourself to do. They are gifts of God. But God doesn't repent for you, and God doesn't trust for you. That is something you do by His grace. And He will be our Savior. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of His suffering and death. When was he crowned with glory and honor? In the wake of his suffering and death, where was it first manifest? In the resurrection from the dead. That's God's yes to Jesus. The no was, the cup won't pass from you, you must drink it. The yes was, I will resurrect you on the third day. And you will be exalted and crowned on high. We have a Savior and the only priest we will ever need who is sympathetic with our sin, who understands submission, and has experienced suffering, and he knows how to make it fruitful. He is the Savior we need. And that's a perfect message for us. There's so one other thing I just want to mention before we close. There's a mention here that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of... Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a mysterious figure. The name Melchizedek, Melchi, is the word for king. Zedek is the word for priest. He's a priest king. It's interesting here that it is stressed that he's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The point is going to be picked up again in Hebrews chapter 7 for a very important reason. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. No Levitical priests were from the tribe of Judah. They were all from the tribe of Levi. So you have this question, how can the Messiah be a king and son of David and thus be from the tribe of Judah, and at the same time be a priest, because the priest could only be from the tribe of Levi. You Bible scholars, you got a problem here. How can he do that? Don't you remember when Saul offered the sacrifice before Samuel got there, and the prophet was furious with him, and God stopped Saul from being king. Why? Because he took upon himself not only the role of king, but also the role of what? Priest. 
how can Jesus be our effective high priest when clearly he's not from the tribe of Levi? The author of Hebrews is giving us an answer how it can be. Because the Messiah is not a priest according to the tribe of Levi. He's a priest according to Melchizedek. And so both the lion of the tribe of Judah and a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This passage reminds us that Christ in his priestly work has earned our salvation. Salvation is by works, not by our works, but by Christ's works. And therefore, for us, salvation is only by grace because it is for the work of Christ that God the Father spares us as we trust in him. Therefore, our salvation is sure because the Father will not deny his son and what his son has done. Now you may be here this morning and you're listening and I'm telling you over and over that Jesus is the Savior you need. And listen to what Jesus said. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, the only priest who understands your sin, your weakness, who understands what it means and how difficult it is to submit to the will of God, and who understands suffering, who understands how to liberate you from sin, who in fact has liberated from sin all who trust in Him, is Jesus Christ. Therefore you come to Him by faith. That is, you look outside of yourself and you trust in Him and you rest all your weight upon Him. And if you're a believer in Christ today, you need to believe on Him as well. Because we not only have a salvation by faith, we walk by faith, not by sight. When you become a Christian, your adventure in trusting God has not come to an end. It's just a beginning. You come to God by faith. You live with God by faith. You'll go to glory by faith. So suffering that you're enduring... So believers struggling here today with the things you have to submit to, with the struggles you have against sin that you're fighting, and with the suffering you're enduring, believe that Jesus is the Savior you need. Both unbeliever and believer, because we all struggle with the same stuff. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us the Savior we need. And because of his resurrection and ascension, designating him to be the last and best and only priest that we will ever need according to the order of Melchizedek. And grant today that we might believe in him and believe on him and trust in him in Jesus' name. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, won't you bless us? as we receive an offering and may it come from grateful hearts who are overwhelmed by your goodness and mercy and we pray in jesus name